Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, I'm excited. We have a return guest and uh, it was a great conversation last time. Who'd you bring back? We brought Tom White back, and uh, I guess he's our first back-to-back episode guest here. So we're, we're yeah. excited for uh, for Tom's you know, sharing more wisdom today. We, if you didn't listen to the last episode, we were talking about qualified retirement plans. We we spent a little bit of time talking about just like traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs, but then we really went into a deep dive into the four hundred one k plans, simple IRAs, SEP IRAs, defined benefit pension plans. So there's a lot of great information. If you didn't catch that episode, go back and, and listen to that. But we're bringing Tom back for part two. Because today we're going to be talking about non-qualified deferred compensation plans. And this is a really cool topic. I, I really enjoy talking about this because this is something that I, I don't think it gets a lot of uh, a lot of attention out there. And there's a lot of business owners that that have key employees that they really want to incentivize to stay with the company long term. They want them to be rewarded financially, which is a win-win because if you have great key employees that continue to, to drive the company forward... Uh, you you want to make sure you're paying them well and you have some some deferred compensation for them, but that also helps you as the business owner to to drive the value. So, so Tom, welcome back. I'm excited for this episode. Thank you, Jim. Really appreciate that. And I'm honored that I'm the first back-to-back guest. Hope nope, I can live pressure. up to that. No, you could be the last, no pressure, right? <laughs> so, so Tom, I, I liked how we started the last episode with the history of pension plans. You talked about how it dated back to the Roman Empire. And I think that'd be a great way to start this episode is talking about the history of non-qualified deferred compensation plans, because these don't have quite the history going back to the Roman Empire, but it is an interesting history. So why don't we start off with that? Absolutely. So thanks, Jim. Um, the The history of non-qualified plans actually date back to the 1950s and to a boxer named Sugar Ray Robinson. And for those that may not be familiar, Sugar Ray is widely regarded as, as maybe one of the best boxers and certainly one of the best pound-for-pound boxers. He had an incredible record uh, as an amateur of 85-0, and 0, with 69 of those 85 wins being by knockout. And then when he turned pro at age 19, he started a run of 128 one and two. And he also had a 91 fight unbeaten streak between 1943 and 51. And uh, so he, he was an incredible boxer, but he had a problem. And that was that he was earning a lot of money for these fights at a time when the federal income tax bracket topped out at over 90%. And in fact, when, when he entered into the first deferred compensation plan, which was uh, actually in 1957, the the top federal income tax rate was 91%. And so he was facing an issue where he had a very short, I would say artificially short career path compared to most of us. And he was making great money, but he was paying the the between federal government, state government, et cetera, the vast majority of what he was earning. And so he you know, long story short, his his tax accountant, his tax attorney figured out a way that they could basically go to the uh, the boxing promoters who, who pay the boxers and they would say, hey, you know what? We're going to earn this money for the fight, but don't pay it to us now. Pay it to us in the future. And with that uh, basic agreement, that contract, the whole concept of non-qualified deferred compensation plans were born. Pretty cool. I never knew that story. Yeah, it uh, it's it's a fascinating history when you kind of dig into this stuff. And actually, if you're interested, or if maybe the listeners that might be, you can look up. The IRS actually sued him, saying that this was not uh, appropriate. This was not something that somebody could do. And the IRS actually lost that lawsuit, which was which another another victory for the man. Right? This guy's taking punches from all uh, all angles here, not just in the ring, but he's getting from the that's, IRS. That's so. right. So, so I guess for the um, for the audience, what, what are some of the main concepts with these these deferred compensation plans? I mean, why why would a business do this? Uh, why is it good for the company? Why is it good for the employee? And, sure. And how do so, they work? 
Yeah. And, and there's different flavors today. Uh, there are different flavors of deferred compensation plans. And, and I would say that the two main uh, ways that these are set up first is a deferral focused plan where we're really just offering the employee an option to save money into this program, much like my Sugar Ray example, right? Save money out of today's income and today's taxes to be paid in the future and taxed in the future to that employee. So that's the first type. Uh, the second type is really where it's funded by the employer. So think about it as an incentive-based program, or maybe we have the the top one or two people within a company who are who are really involved in driving the bottom line and the success of that company, those top people can be incentivized in a way that's different than everybody else. You know, unlike a qualified plan, like a 401k with a non-qualified plan, you get to select exactly who can participate and exactly what the structure of their benefits are. So we can limit who's eligible, whether the employee only is going to contribute, whether the employer is going to contribute. And the really nice thing from the employer's perspective is they can change the contributions from year to year. They can change the formulas that that sort of run to decide those contributions. And then finally, vesting. You know, we talked about last time about how how many of the qualified retirement plans have very specific vesting schedules that have to be lived with. When you're in the world of of non-qualified deferred compensation plans, the employer has a whole lot more flexibility. And I have been involved putting these in place where we had a vesting schedule as long as 17 years. So that's sort of at the, I would say the logical extreme of, of how these can work. But but you can absolutely, as the employer, put golden handcuffs on those key employees, put lots of money into this program, but also ensure that the employee is not going to receive that money unless they they live within the rules that you want them to live. Tom, before we, we go any further, I, just, I want to think of just a couple of examples. You, you take the first one that you mentioned where the employee can take some of their income they're earning now deferred into the future. It kind of sounds like a 401k plan, but it's different. Can a company have both a 401k plan and have a plan where employees can elect to defer even more of their compensation in the future? And, and what kinds of companies or what kinds of um, what kinds of situations would that really be attractive? Sure. So the answer to your question is yes. Uh, in fact, most companies that sponsor non-qualified deferred compensation plans have a 401k to begin with. It's just that the 401k is is kind of for everybody. And these non-qualified plans are for the top producers, the most productive employees uh, within a company. And so the the first flavor, which I'll I'll dive into here, is this deferral-based non-qualified deferred compensation plan. Because high earners face their own set of problems. First of all, here in the US, we have what I'll call a regressive social security system, meaning that the more you earn as an employee, the less percentage you are going to get replaced by the social security system in retirement. Um, so for example, if if I'm earning $50,000 a year, $30,000 a year, the vast majority of my earnings are going to be replaced by social security when I hit retirement. But if I'm making $530,000 a year, then a much smaller percentage of what I had been earning during my my career is going to be replaced by Social Security. And so, you know, those high earners, they establish a lifestyle based on the money that they're earning. And as they step out into retirement, all of a sudden, like most of, if not virtually all of their income stops. So that's that's the first problem they face is the regressive Social Security system. The other problem that they face is that the 401ks and other qualified retirement programs, which are available, they don't really allow those high income earners to save enough to replace their income in retirement. As, as we talked about last time, there are, there are hard dollar limits related to what an employee can save. This year, it's $22,500. But if I'm a, if I'm a 50 year old executive making half a million dollars a year, $22,000 of savings is not going to get me to a place where I can replace my income by retirement age. And so using these non-qualified deferred compensation sort of stacked on top of a quality 401k platform, allow the employees to save more. And when you're talking about, you know, one of the 
frequent questions I get is how much can this executive save into a non-qualified plan? And the answer is it's unlimited. Um, they can save virtually 100% of what they earn into the non-qualified plan with the agreement that the employer is going to pay them that money plus some interest or growth in the future. And so that's that's the first type. Um, sometimes these are called traditional non-qualified deferred compensation plans. Sometimes they're called 401k mirror plans because it sort of mirrors what the 401k does. Many times the same investment options are available. Many times the same matching formula is included in these uh, in these traditional non-qualified deferred comp plans. Excellent. So I, I know there's people that are thinking, wow, this is going to be complicated, right? Because we know that, I mean, qualified retirement plans, I mean, there's they are very complicated. I mean, you look at the documents to put a plan together and there's you know, a couple hundred pages there. So there's probably people thinking this is going to be the same thing, but they're really not that complicated. So, I mean, they can be complicated, but we'll, we'll only start with the most basic form of executive bonus compensation and, and just talk about what a what a Section 162 executive bonus plan is and, and how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned Section 162. That's named after the code section. I'll, I'll say that, uh, you know, ERISA attorneys aren't all that creative because, um, you know, many times we just name things after the code section. And, and this is one of those examples. So a Section 162 executive bonus plan is basically a program where the employer promises to put some money away and pay that in the form of a bonus at some point in the future. Um, this is one of those programs where it's employer funded only. Um, so basically the employer, if, if, if I'm the employer, you're the employee, Jim, you know, I might say, Hey, Jim, you know, you're a great employee. What I want to do is incentivize you not only to keep performing at a high level, but also to stick with me for say the next 10 years. And so I could put a section 162 executive bonus program in place and say, basically, Hey, I'm going to fund this. And let's say to the tune of $10,000 a year for the next 10 years. And what's going to happen with this program is I'm putting money into a pool. That money is going to be a tax deduction for me as the employer when I deposit it into that pool. It's also going to be taxable income for you the same time. So in one respect, you as the employee are not really saving any taxes on this money, but in exchange for paying the taxes up front, what you're going to get is this big pool of money down the road that's completely funded by me, the employer. And then there are other flavors of these 162 executive bonus plans where sometimes, you know, you as the employee might say, well, hey, I'm getting all of these contributions to this program from you, which I appreciate, but I'm having to pay tax on this. Could you cover the taxes for me? And, and the answer is yes. And that's called a double bonus section 162 executive bonus plan. Again, not very creative, but that's, but that's the, the, uh, the terminology. Yeah. Then you get, I, I would say the next layer of that where I might say, well, well, Jim, I'm willing to fund this for the next 10 years and you're not going to have access to it. Uh, and that's called a restricted bonus program where I'm funding it. You're getting the taxes each year. I may decide to cover those taxes through that double bonus arrangement. And then at 10 years, the restriction lifts. And now that money is yours and you can do whatever you like with it. So just to, again, give it, give an example for the audience here. So you mentioned the 10,000 bucks that's going into the plan. If it was just a straight up, you know, executive bonus plan, I would pay tax on that money as it's deposited. So if you're putting 10 grand a year in, I'm paying maybe let's call it three grand in tax each year. Mm -hmm. But you may say, you know what, I'm going to gross this up. Maybe I'll pay you 13,000 or 14,000 bucks so that you have the money to pay the tax. And then the other 10,000 goes into the, uh, into the bonus program. And then again, if maybe I'm your, I'm your VP of sales, right? And you want me to be here for 10 years, 10 years goes by. I have no access to the money for the first 10 years, but when, when year 10 hits and that restriction's lifted, if I am maybe sending a child to college and I want to grab that money and use that for tuition, I can do that, correct? That's exactly right. You can you use it for, if you mentioned college, that's a very frequent kind of vesting thing. The other thing that that I've been involved with with a lot of companies and executives is, hey, now now it's time to buy that that lake house. Now it's time to buy that boat or whatever that is um, that that gets the executive excited. Yeah, so it's nice to be able to tie you know, the, the the benefit to important things in the employee's life. Yep, exactly. So, 
what about I mean, again retention's a big thing on people's minds now especially with what we've been through in the economy the last few years it's every business owner i talk to is having a, a talent acquisition problem and a talent retention problem so I, I think it's you know look there's some employees like they come and go you're sad to see them leave sometimes you're relieved but there's others it's like yeah if this person leaves it's going to be it's going to be a, a big hit to the company so i really want to focus on retaining this person for quite some time so why don't we talk about retention bonus plans and and how those work yeah. as opposed to this, the executive bonus plan. Sure. And and I I guess before I jump into the retention bonus, I just want to recap how the section 162 executive bonus works and how it differs from this retention bonus because they sound similar, but with the section 162, the employer is getting a tax deduction up front as they're depositing funds into this program. And then the employee is getting taxed each year as those deposits are being made. The retention bonus program is sort of the opposite. So in the retention bonus program, if if you were the executive again and I were the employer, I would say, hey, Jim, I'm going to put this retention bonus program in place. I'm going to deposit the $10,000 a year for the next 10 years. You don't have access to it. You do not receive any taxes on that deposit. But if you stick with me 10 years from now, you'll have uh, I'm, I'm going to transfer this money to you. I use analogies when I'm talking to clients. So I'm going to transfer this bucket of money to you at that time. You'll be taxed on the funds that are there and it'll be the $10,000 a year plus, you know, some nominal growth or, or interest that it has earned over that time period. And from that time forward, it's yours and you can do whatever you like with it. And this is the program that that actually I find most employers really like because they completely control the asset until the time that it vests. And, and I mentioned the, um, the one example with a client of mine where we put a 17-year vesting period on, on one of these programs. This is the arrangement. It was a retention bonus program where the executive in question two things. So first, it was the the number one non-owner within the business. And so it was very important to the owner that that person stick around. Second, that executive had just had a child. And so the business owner thought, well, hey, how about I start funding this? And, and in this case, it was, a I think, a $12,000 a year contribution going into retention bonus program for 17 years. And if that executive is still there 17 years from now, Here's a big pile of money that's going to be available, in essence, to help pay for that child's college education. Excellent. So in the meantime, the owner is setting aside money. It's on the corporate balance sheet. So if if something comes up in, in the business, good or bad, an opportunity pops up, maybe uh, they hit some some rough times, that's money that it's still available for the business to use if they if they had to. But they still have to make do in their provinces, obviously. But if they need to dip into some of that money, is that available to them or is that locked up like it is like in a in a trust for a for a four hundred one k plan? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I have a different story I can tell on that one. Um, <laughs> the the answer to your question is it's available. It's available to the business owner. And the the story that I'll tell is actually around a pizza parlor client of mine who set up one of these retention bonus programs. I say a pizza parlor, but actually it's a 17 location chain of, of pizza, pizza empire. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, kind of throughout the Midwest, stretching down to Florida. And what our business owner did is he set up a retention bonus program for each of the regional managers in this case. And it was a, I think it was a 15 year vest period all, you know, in, in a pizza, I think most restaurants, Everybody's young. So I think when we set this up, everybody was in their late 20s. And so we'd set up a retention bonus program. The employer funded it to the tune of $20,000 a year, and it vests after 15 years. Well, what happened as they were expanding, one of their expansion locations was in Florida and a hurricane hit. So they're literally like they had just opened the doors in their Florida location. Six months earlier, hurricane hits, wipes out the entire town. And so the client of mine um, approached me and said, hey, you know, we've got this at that time it was roughly $400,000 sitting in the retention bonus pool waiting to be distributed seven, eight years down the road. Can we use that? And I said, absolutely. You know, we can get it wired to your account in roughly 48 hours. You can use it for whatever you want. Just understand that you have this liability on the books, you know, that you must pay this out seven years from now. So let's make sure we put the money back. And he said, oh, no problem. He explained the situation to me. Basically, by getting the $400,000 of liquidity, 
what he was able to do is rebuild the Florida location before anybody else, any of his competitors, were able to get the insurance money from the property and casualty insurance companies. And so he was up and running and and basically making pizza for everybody who was rebuilding the area. And so I asked him, I, I said, his name's Rob. I said, so Rob, you know, how much was that $400,000 of liquidity worth to you? And he goes, I'm not kidding you. We made probably $2 million in the following six months just selling pizza to everybody else who was rebuilding the area. And awesome. so that's just an example of of how, you know, that's kind of a logical extreme example, but it, it is an example of how that liquidity is available to the business owner and how a business owner can use it to help, uh, I would say, maintain or take advantage of opportunities that the business may face. Right. Because the owners, you know, it, it's like you, you need to set the money aside, right, to make sure that you're going to have it. But these plans are what's called informally funded, which is unlike a 401k plan where it's like, this is the pot of money. This is the 401k plan. Whereas with, with these programs we're talking about so far, the business is setting aside money, but it's not specifically required to be used for these bonus programs. So you might just, you might have grown revenues substantially and you just paid out of cash flow. Right. Um, so it's, it's very, very flexible. And it, I think it's a great story to show the, um, you know, it, it can also kind of create an emergency fund for a business at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a fun story because they're the, the $400,000 got repaid when the property and casualty insurance carrier finally got around to paying the claim that they had. And right. so it was just a, a short-term liquidity play. Yep. Excellent. So let, let's move on to uh, something that uh, sometimes it, it sounds a little bit more confusing, but I think there's a way to simplify it. But uh, something called a split dollar plan. Yeah. So and, and good. Yeah. So split dollar plans. Um, I, I would say it's it's funny when I first got into this business twenty five years ago, they were all the rage, and and I think a little bit of that was you know it seemed like more complicated the better, <laughs> and and today it seems like the simpler the better. So uh, split dollar plans at the surface do seem complicated, but at the root. It's really not um, at the root of what the program is. It's, it's basically the employer setting up a life insurance program that the death benefit will will benefit the employee's family. In most cases, now, some of this stuff's flexible, but the in most cases, the death benefit would would benefit the employee's family if they should pass away. The employer funds it and then the amount that the employer is funding each year is basically an outstanding loan balance that the employee must pay must pay interest on. And again, this is a top level review. There's actually two flavors of split dollar. One is economic benefit. One is loan regime. What we do typically is loan regime, and that's what I'm describing here. So basically, the employee, the executive, would have to pay the interest each year, or in most cases, the employer pays it and just adds that to the W-2 that the executive would have. So the employer is funding it. The employer typically is is covering the interest and and the employee only has to pay tax on the interest that is accruing in that program each year. Again, fast forward, let's say 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, the split dollar program vests and the employer releases the, the loan that has been accruing effectively giving a a big, in this case, a life insurance policy with a lot of cash value, in essence, giving that to the executive at that point down the road. So why do companies do this? Like, what, What's in it for the company? What's in it for the employee? Sure. What's in it for the company is the, the longer vesting period, loyalty, golden handcuffs. What's in it for the employee is, you know, this is a, a program where they can get the life insurance coverage during the interim. And then ultimately they receive the actual life insurance policy, the values down the road. The other thing that's in it for the employer is this split dollar program is, is really one of the only ways that the employer can recoup the costs for setting up and funding this program over time. Frequently uh, an employer, and, and many times these are you know very large, maybe fortune 500 companies, they want to do this for 25, 50, 100 people. And it can be a very expensive proposition to set these kinds of programs up and fund them every year. And by using a split dollar arrangement, the employer keeps access or, or keeps the rights to part of that death benefit. And what do we know? We're all going to die someday. So when that death occurs, 
the employer has the right to recoup the funds that it has spent on that program over the life of the program in the form of, of a tax-free death benefit. So this is when you, know, you, you read, you know, maybe it's the Wall Street Journal, or you, you hear some of these uh, these articles, or you read some of these articles about some very generous, you know, maybe Fortune 500 companies that are that are paying out these these huge deferred comp plans to employees. A lot of times you think, well, that's awfully generous of them. And you, you, if you kind of put a different hat on and go, wait a minute, if I'm a shareholder of that company, why would I be okay with this level of compensation going to these executives? Now, granted, there's a lot of talent there. That's why you know we, we need to pay our top people good amounts of money to keep the talent here. But it's this cost recovery feature where that's why shareholders are okay with it. They go, sure, the company's going to outlay this money, but eventually we all die. And eventually these dollars do come pouring back into the corporation and can offset a, a very large portion, if not all of that cost. That's right. And you know, in, in the life insurance world, there's this concept called the inevitable gain, right? And what that's basically looking at is, is if you track the dollars going into a life insurance policy compared with the death benefit, which eventually gets received tax-free, there's a significant gain, a significant delta between those two numbers. And that's by by implementing a split dollar program, that is, you know, that's what the employer is eventually benefiting from. And and if you can go to an employer and say, hey, I know this feels, you know, expensive. I know this feels like you're putting a lot of money into this program, but understand it's all coming back to you at some point in the future. Many times it could be more palatable. Right. And just to give a, a shameless plug to uh episode 23, you know, if you think about you know, why would a corporation do this, you know, we did a a whole deep dive on you know how these life insurance policies work just as an asset. And uh, once you listen to that, you'll see why. This is a, a very attractive asset for a company to own on their balance sheet. And the fact that the, it has this inevitable inevitable gain built in makes it incredibly cost-effective long-term. So, so Tom, what, what other kinds of plans are out there? So I know we've covered the, the, the executive bonus plans, the retention bonus, split dollar. What else is out there? Sure. So there are, um, you know, and I, and I really started talking about these maybe 15 minutes ago, but there are the, what I would call a traditional deferral or salary re- deferral non-qualified plan. And sometimes these are called 401k mirror plans, but imagine that you're an executive of the Fortune 500 company uh, making, you know, a, a lot of money each year, and you're therefore paying income taxes at a very high rate. Compounding that problem, you also are not going to receive the social security replacement that that others at maybe lower income ranges would receive, and you're limited to the tune of, in this year, $22,500. You're limited in that you can only put that much money into the 401k. So what a traditional non-qualified deferred compensation plan allows is basically your employer could set up this extra deferred compensation program that allows you as the executive to put as much as you want in. So you could put the 22.5 into the 401k, and then you could save an extra 50 or $100,000 into the non-qualified deferred compensation plan with the promise that your employer will pay that out to you at some point in the future. Um, Typically, these are around the age that your child may go to college. These might be triggered or paid out to you in retirement. hopefully when you're in a lower income tax bracket. So that's a traditional non-qualified deferred comp. Many times, especially when you talk about large employers, they also match that money or the employer may have the opportunity to put a like a profit sharing or an incentive-based uh, distribution into that program as well. And you can get very creative with this. So I've, I've been involved in these kind of programs where, where the employer, let's say that, that your head of sales, go back to your example from earlier, the employer might say, okay, well, if you grow sales by 20%, here's an extra $50,000 that we, the employer, are going to deposit into your non-qualified plan, and you'll get that paid out when you're 65 and retired. So that's that's a what I would say a traditional non-qualified uh, deferred compensation plan, and, and that's how they're used and some of the flexibility and, and I guess, creativeness, which can be can be included in them. In addition to that, so that's the deferral approach. In addition to that, there's something called a SERP. Uh, S-E-R-P is the acronym Supplemental Executive Retirement Program is, is what it stands for. And basically what that allows an employer to do is set up a program where the employee is not depositing any funds. 
the employer is depositing the funds. The employer is is setting when the vesting schedule vests, you know, when when this money becomes the executives. The employer is deciding on a discretionary basis how much it wants to deposit into this program each year. And many times these programs are are called golden handcuff programs. So here the employer holds all the cards, they're writing the rule book, and the employee is simply receiving this extra money if they live within the rules. If they work for, you know, at least 15 more years or if they retire, you know, no earlier than age 62 from the company. What's interesting about this, especially on the SERP side, is from the employer's perspective, it's pretty attractive because they can, in essence, put golden handcuffs on this key executive. If they leave before a certain date or before a certain age, then they don't get any of the money. Um, However, if the employer decides, even after the fact, that, hey, you know what, Jim was supposed to work until he was 65, but... You know, he uh, had a a negative health situation that came up when he was 62, so he decided to retire early. We're going to pay it out anyway. So in that respect, the employer still has some flexibility. It's just from the from the uh, the base or where we're starting from, you know, we're we're able to keep those key employees around. So that's that's the SERP uh, program. And then there are combinations of the above, right, where the employee might be given the opportunity to save money out of their payroll, save taxes from today, push that income and taxation into the future. And the employer can either match that, can make contributions toward that, can set vesting schedules on those matching and and profit sharing type contributions into the program. And and that's where we see some real nice flexibility and, and some real application uh, for many employers move in. So let, let's change topics here slightly because uh, I know it's, it's still related to all this, but I want to address something that, that I hear all the time. I know you hear it all the time where you have you have a company where you know you've, you've got some key people. They've grown pretty close to the owners, and and they're starting to put pressure on the owners of the business to um, to own a piece of the pie, right? And they're they're saying, "Hey, look, this is how long I've been here. This is what I'm contributing to the bottom line. I want to own a piece of this business." And I think sometimes owners feel like, "Okay, I guess I have to start to figure out a way to to get these people to own a piece of the business." But there's there's a lot of downside of that. And, and you know, there's this whole idea of of creating what's called a phantom stock plan, where you know it it can it can feel like you own stock in the company, but you as the owner, you have not given up any control or any ownership to any of the any of the people. So let, let's spend a little bit of time talking about phantom stock plans, how they work, who they're for, what problems they solve, how they're funded. Sure. I think it's a it's a pretty pretty important topic. Yeah, no, it is absolutely, and you're right. I mean, this comes up. Pretty frequently in closely held businesses, um, especially for those employees that that maybe have been around a while and um, and feel like they've earned, you know, earned it, at minimum a, a minority interest in this business, you know, two percent, five percent. The downside to the owner of actually giving these uh, employees ownership in the business, uh, it, it's there's a number of bad things. Um, and I, I don't know if this is something you're planning to cover on a future podcast, so I won't dig too deeply into it. But but at a minimum, majority shareholder, so our business owner, they owe a fiduciary responsibility to minority shareholders. So imagine that you own a body shop and and your top two people, top two paid people in the business, say, they approach you and say, hey, I I you know feel like I've earned an ownership interest in this business. I I'd like to have two percent, five percent. So when you sell this eventually, I can benefit from it. Option one is you can give them the ownership interest, and that creates this fiduciary responsibility. That creates some reporting responsibility regarding the financials each year. If you, as the owner, you know of this business, take a distribution as an ownership distribution out of the business, you have to also distribute cash to them. It gets, for a variety of reasons, it it gets pretty messy. And so what a phantom stock program is designed to do is treat those employees just like they own part of the business in, in, from a financial perspective, but they don't actually own the business. So you don't have all these negative consequences that are involved. So in essence, with a phantom stock program, um, let's imagine that that you are the owner of this body shop and I'm the employee. I approach you and say, hey, I, I feel like I've earned a 5% ownership interest in this. And you say, you know what? I agree, but I'm not going to give you 5%. Instead, we're going to set up this phantom stock program. We're going to value the business at 
$5 million this year. And we're going to basically give you these phantom stock shares for calculation purposes to determine what you will be paid at some point in the future. So 5%, 5 million, that's $250,000. And we're going to act like you are an owner. We're going to deposit these $250,000 into an account and we're going to track the value of this business. And if by the time that, that, uh, you know, you retire as the owner of this business, if the business grows to be worth $10 million, well, now my share of that, because of this phantom stock calculation, my share of that's still at 5%. Now it's a half million dollars. And you as the business owner have been setting money aside to pay out this, this uh, liability that's on the business balance sheet. So at its, its very core, that's what a phantom stock plan is. That's what it's designed to take care of. And it is a version or a flavor of a non-qualified deferred compensation program. So everything we've covered so far, I know that everything's a little bit different here, but how hard is it to set up one of these plans, like any of the things we've talked about? Uh, how do you administer them? Who tracks it? Who are the, the record keepers? Can you just spend a minute talking about kind of the the, sure. the, the process to start up and, and, and keep these things on the right track? Yeah. And, and understand there are different flavors of these programs, and therefore there's different levels of complexity uh, regarding the setup and the administration. So let's start with the easiest. Uh, Section 162 executive bonus program is extremely easy and quick to set up. In fact, uh, it's possible to set it up without really even any paperwork. Typically, these are funded with a small life insurance policy. So it could be simply the employer getting a life insurance policy on the life of one of the employees. The employee owns it. The employer funds it. When you add the restriction, so going back to our prior you know, conversation from maybe 30 minutes ago, when you add the restriction where the cash value of that policy vests at some point in the future, that is when we we have to have something in writing. And it's really just a two or three page contract between the employer and the employee. So that's the first and I would say simplest type of non-qualified plan. And that also has the least, you know, the, the least structure, I think. When you add to a retention, when you kind of go to the next level with the retention bonus program, we want to have something in writing. I have sample agreements that, that I uh, sometimes share with counsel for my clients. And these sample agreements are three to five pages in length. So it's not not uh, very lengthy is from a reporting standpoint, typically wherever that money's held, uh, if it's in a life insurance policy or in a, an investment account, the reporting for that can be generated or uh, kind of provided to the participant in the plan. When we get into split dollar plans, the traditional sort of the salary deferral non-qualified plans, there's more reporting required and there's also administration required on an annual basis. So there is going to be, you know, some version of a of a plan document describing what the benefits are. There's going to be enrollment paperwork for the participants to, you know, set up especially if they're deferring their own money into the program, they're going to need to elect when they're going to get that money back out of the program. So is it at age 55 when my kids are in college, is it 67 when I'm retired? If the employee is deferring money of the program, they have to say when they want it back out. And Similarly, with a SERP, uh, which again is that employer-funded golden handcuff type plan, with a SERP, we're going to need a, a kind of a formal plan document describing exactly when these funds are going to be made available to the to the executive, and if there are other distributions. So, for example, uh, an early disability or an early death. What happens? When is that money being made available to the executive or their family in, in those circumstances? So, there are some some formal plan documents and some formal, you know, administration and reporting that's necessary on an annual basis as you kind of walk up that ladder. So if we just kind of put these into just some buckets of categories of of, of who these plans apply to, like what what size companies and, and when do they do them? Let's just kind of bucket these a little bit here. And then the other thing I want to touch on before we wrap up is is how can these plans work with a, an owner who's planning an exit? And okay. yeah, once you get out of their company, they want to make sure that uh, they're getting out with the, the most amount of money after tax as possible. And, and so I want to make sure we, we have time to touch on that as well. Sure, sure. So as far as bucketing them and and kind of looking at who the right client is for some of these concepts, um, I would say for small to mid-sized businesses, you pretty much are, are looking at either a Section 162 executive bonus 
or a retention bonus program. Split dollar can can fall into that too. I would tell the audience for for everybody's purposes right now, with interest rates back at a higher rate, we're seeing less interest in split dollar plans. Um, when interest rates are lower, they're very attractive. But when interest rates are higher, they're not quite as attractive. So what I'm seeing, in at least in our practice this year, is a whole lot of focus on Section 162 executive bonus and then those retention bonus programs. So those are really good from you know a small employer, maybe a handful of employees, all the way up to you know, we, we've set those up with employers as, as many as 100 total employees. Once you start to get larger than that, the salary deferral, traditional non-qualified uh, plans, and then the SERPs really start to take over as um, as kind of the preferred structure. Just because when you get to that level, we're going to have a few employees that will be participants in this that are making significant money that want to defer their own income into the program that want to um, you know, receive reporting, that maybe want to have an online portal where they can modify the investment selections that, that this hypothetical account is being invested in. So when you start to, again, walk up that ladder, it, it really is going to be a larger employer where these fit. I would tell you, it, just in my own practice, we have put, um, going back to those smaller type plans, a Section 162 executive bonus or the retention bonus programs, we're putting those in actually very small employers, maybe 5, 10, 15 total employees, um, where we just want to give that top one or two person an opportunity to, or a reason, I should say, to to stick around and an opportunity to earn some extra money for doing it. Once we get to those uh, salary deferral, non-qualified, SERPs, those kind of programs, really, I would say 50 employees or more are probably the sweet spot. But Jim, I mean, you know, you practice in this space too. Would you agree with those numbers that the the retention bonus or executive bonus programs are those smaller employers? And then once you get to maybe 75, 100 employees, the salary deferral and SERPs start to take over? I would agree 100% because, you know, I think that you look at some of the smaller employers, they're looking to keep things simple and keep things clean. And the Section 162 bonus plans are, are super easy to explain. It's easy to communicate to the employees, low administrative, almost no administrative burden. And same thing with the retention bonus program. It's kind of like that next level. But I agree. When you get to these larger companies, yeah, they may have dedicated HR people. They've got they've got people that are more used to dealing with these these larger, more complicated retirement plans. So I think they have kind of the the um, you know the, the firepower of some additional staff to help you know with with making sure these plans are on track because the owner doesn't want to deal with it, right? Yeah, that's right. And and the other factor there is they're also going to be trying to attract and retain. I would say pretty pretty top level talent, and at some point, it's it's a requirement. I mean, if you're if you're trying to attract and retain somebody who's who's coming from a Fortune 500 type company, they're used to having that sort of benefit there. So you really have to offer that sort of benefit with uh, as part of the hiring package, right? And that's that's a good point because I think a lot of times you know, people go well, look at all these benefits that we that we offer. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Those are important. Like every employee expects that. But that doesn't really keep somebody here till like the end of the year. I mean, that's, that's all it really does. I mean, once you that's pay right. them their cash bonuses, they get their medical benefits. Like that's great for now, but that doesn't incentivize somebody to stick around for you know ten to fifteen years. Yeah, that's and, exactly and, right. And a lot of times we're, we are tying this back to the whole the whole exit planning conversation because a lot of the clients we work with are looking at, hey, you know, I want to I want to be here for another maybe five to fifteen years, but then I want to I want to pull the parachute. And I want to move on with life. And it's yeah. like, well, if your key people aren't still here, then that could that could really impact the value of this company when you exit. But also, who's buying you out? So I think that's the kind of the, the final topic here is that you know if if somebody's looking at a transfer to people inside the company, you know they're looking to have the key people buy them out, or they're looking to have their kids mm-hmm. become the uh, the succession plan here. How do these non qualified deferred comp plans factor into a an exit for the owner? Yeah, so. Let me actually just piggyback on a comment you just made first. So as it relates to a business owner that maybe wants to, let's say, retire, sell the business 10 years from now, the value of that business, the the amount of money they will receive upon that exit to, let's say, a third-party buyer, let's say they're selling to private equity, the value of that business is going to be materially different if there are employment agreement and non-qualified deferred compensation hooks into those key people who are driving the revenue of the business. So if I have contracts in place that keep the key people 
around past the date of my retirement, the the value of the business is going to be materially higher because that buyer, the, in my example, private equity is going to say, well, you know, we've got, we know we've got these key people for at least three years beyond transition. So at that point, we, we've, we're very comfortable regarding the revenue and, and uh, kind of the net income numbers for the business. Similarly, for the small, closely held business uh, business owner that may be looking to transfer ownership of this business, let's say to an inside buyer, somebody who's already working within the business. I actually had a conversation about this yesterday with a business owner. By using non-qualified deferred compensation plans, there is a really nice angle here where you can go to that, let's say that junior person who eventually may buy out the owner and say, hey, I'm going to put this deferred compensation plan in place for your benefit. Stick with me. This will vest in 10 years and you'll have a half million dollars roughly in this in this account. So, and you know, Mr. Junior employee, my plan is to retire about then. And what I would like to do is look at selling this business to you. The liquidity that you'll have from this non-qualified plan that we just set up for your benefit is going to provide you an opportunity to put a, a down payment toward the purchase of this business from me. And so by doing that, you're tying in that key executive employee and you're sort of putting in place at least the cash for the down payment to help that business transaction work. So that's that's one angle that, that uh, business... Uh, I would say business exits can be helped by putting non-qualified plans in place. The other angle is a non-qualified plan on the business owner themselves. And you have to stick with me kind of as we go through this because it's a, a couple of layers of logic. But the first is, let's say that I'm a business owner and I want to sell my business to my daughter. Okay. I'm, let's say 60 years old. I want to sell it in five years. What I can do is I can set up a non-qualified deferred compensation plan for me, for my benefit, that's going to start distributing it out, let's say in five years for a period of, of time of 10 years after that point. What that does, first of all, to the valuation of the business, now the business has this liability on the balance sheet. So it's effectively reducing the value of the business that my daughter is going to have to, to pay me, right, to, uh, to actually purchase it. And, and so that's a good thing. Secondly, what it also does is it makes part of the effective purchase payment, that non-qualified portion, it makes that tax deductible to the business. So as as your your listeners may know or may not know, you know, when when the second line of ownership, when the buyer is getting ready to buy a business, they don't get to tax deduct the actual purchase payments. And so that makes it effectively more expensive, you know, 30, 40% more expensive, depending on the tax bracket that the buyer's in. By structuring part of the purchase payment as, you know, through this non-qualified channel, all of a sudden that part of the purchase payment is tax deductible to the buyer. And so by, by structuring it that way, we can make a, a higher valuation, a high, higher eventual purchase price palatable to the buyer where, where it may not otherwise be. Excellent. Yeah, I think this will be a great topic for a future episode as to get into more of the details of the exit planning. But I think that's a that's probably a good place to wrap up for today. Uh, Tom, this was awesome. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, back-to-back -back episodes and, and sharing all this information about both qualified and non-qualified retirement plans. And uh, yeah, if you're a business owner out there and you're you're curious about you know how to optimize your, your qualified retirement plan or you're wondering if the non-qualified plan is the way to go, just reach out to us. You know, we're here to help you out. We're here to walk through those things with you. Uh, you know, Tom and I work together on a lot of these cases. So if you want to reach us, um, you can go to our website, www.mcgovernwealth.com, or you can send us an email, info at mcgovernwealth.com. And just let us know that you're, you're a listener to the show and you, you heard the episodes about retirement planning and and uh, you want to carve out some time and we'll we'll schedule some time to, to discuss everything that's on your mind. So Eric, let me turn it back over to you to wrap us up. Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh podcast full of great information. The first one, I thought that was packed. Uh, this is amazing. So Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. Jim, of course, thank you for facilitating this and hosting an amazing show. And our last thank you goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast with Jim McGovern. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Jim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. 
We humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number. 0F67329 AR Insurance License Number 7119103 California Insurance License Number 0F67329 Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103 Tom White is a registered principal and financial advisor of PAS and a general agent of Guardian. Tom is not practicing law for Guardian or its subsidiaries or affiliates. California Insurance License Number OE84981. Compliance number 2023 157190 expires June of 2025.